Good morning, church. I'm excited to bring a new sermon series to you this morning, and we are going to be focusing for the next five weeks on what I believe is the thing that can save us all. And I know that's a bit of a bold statement, and like anything, something that can have that type of power is not really that popular, nor is it the frequently the subject of a five-week sermon series, but I really believe that if you are looking for the real thing, if you're looking for a lifeline in this season, we should look no further than the biblical value of humility. The big book, written by and used by A.A., has rescued countless people from addiction on this principle found in step five, uh, I mean seven of the big book. It says this, Indeed, the attainment of greater humility is the foundational principle of each of AA's 12 steps. For without some degree of humility, no alcoholic can stay sober at all. Nearly all AAs have found, too, that unless they develop more of this precious quality than may be required just for sobriety, that they still haven't much any chance of becoming truly happy. Without it, they cannot live to much useful purpose or in adversity be able to summon the faith that can meet any emergency. Now, if your first thought when you heard that I was reading from the big book was that the big book is for people struggling with alcoholism, so I can tune out for a second. We are especially glad that you are here this morning. Pride is the antithesis of humility. St. Augustine once wrote, it was pride that changed angels into devils, and it is humility that makes men as angels. Humility is not just the foundational principle of AA, it is a foundational principle of the biblical text. And it is more and more clear to me in this season of long-suffering and great struggle that biblically defined, ecclesiastically embodied faith in humility is the remedy for what ails us. So let me read to you from the text this morning about humility. But before we do, let us pray. Lord Jesus, would you be with everyone tuning into this sermon? Lord, would you instruct us from your word how to live our lives and to follow after you with all of our hearts, minds, and souls as we seek the life that you would have for us and make possible in your strength and power as you come to us 
in our moments of weakness. Open us to all that you would have. Give us your spirit now. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen. Our text this morning is from the book of Romans, five verses starting at chapter 12, I mean in chapter 12, verses 3 through 8, says this. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourselves more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourselves with sober judgment in accordance with the faith that God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, So in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Did you hear how humility functions as a first principle in this text? Paul knows that encountering God changes everything. Previously in this letter, he has described how knowing God changes what we do with our bodies. He's also told us how knowing God changes how we think and how we renew our minds. And now he's turning our attention to how knowing God, encountering the one true God, changes how we relate to one another. And of course, he starts with the grace that he has received from God. Because he's coming with another truth, and he's trying to correct some bad behavior that is going on in the church. And so he starts with his own expression of humility. The church would have known how much grace Paul really needed. This man who spent much of his life as an enemy to the way of Jesus Christ, who was radically converted and is now full of the grace of God. And so he doesn't come from a boastful place of perfection. He comes from a worldview shaped by an ocean of God's grace. But he does say that this word is not just for some bad apples. He says this word is for every single one of you. One thing that we should all do as followers of Jesus, Paul writes, is spend more time honestly evaluating ourselves. 
And we should do this in light of how we are relating to the people around us. Our ability to self-reflect is vital to our growth. Notice that Paul says that we should not think too highly of ourselves. And he goes on to continue to instruct us that we should look at ourselves with sober judgment. Take a real hard, honest look at ourselves. Paul believes that knowing God allows us to see things as they truly are. The starting point is that we also become aware of this ocean of God's grace that is given to us. We can do nothing to earn it or achieve it. We just receive this free gift given to us. But when we do, what that makes possible is that we can honestly look at ourselves. We can have a right view and correct alignment because we can look at the truth. We know that God is truth and he desires to align us correctly with his will. Since the fall, scripture teaches that human beings inflate our own perception of ourselves. We are ever at the center of our own mind's eye, always measuring everything we see and hear against the standard of our own perspective. We live in a day of great emotion where we let emotion dictate our decisions. But following this standard of our own perspective, simply put, will lead us on a road to destruction. It is what is discussed in the book of Deuteronomy when it says that every person has a choice to choose life or to choose death. Following our own way will inevitably lead us to a catastrophic end. Because our own perspective is a way to justify the actions that do harm to others. It may sound something like, well, if you only knew what they did to me. If you only knew what my upbringing was like. If you only knew the kind of bad day that I am having. If you only knew how unfair life is. Have you lived through the last year? And you might be absolutely right, but how does that narrative serve you in the world? How does that narrative stack up against the grace of God? My dear church, the storehouses of heaven are full. We are well taken care of. We are the inheritors of the kingdom of God. And that gives us the ability, even in difficult circumstances, to take on a different point of view. Humility is our remedy. Thomas Merton, the great Catholic theologian and mystic, writes it this way. He says, In a sense, pride 
is simply a form of supreme and absolute subjectivity. It sees all things from the viewpoint of a limited individual self that is constituted at the center of the universe. If I am the center of the universe, then everything belongs to me. I can claim as my due all good things of the earth. I can rob and cheat and bully other people. I can help myself to anything I like, and no one can resist me. Yet at the same time, all must respect and love me as benefactor, a sage, a leader, a king. They must let me bully them and take away all that they have, and on top of it all, they must bow down, kiss my feet, and greet me as God, lowercase. Humility, therefore, is absolutely necessary if man is to avoid acting like a baby all of his life. To grow up means, in fact, to become humble, to throw away the illusion that I am the center of everything and that other people only exist to provide me with comfort and pleasure. Unfortunately, pride is so deeply embedded in human society that instead of educating one another for humility and maturity, we bring each other up in selfishness and pride. The attitudes that ought to make us mature too often only give us a kind of poise or a kind of veneer. That makes our pride all the more suave and effective For social life, in the end, is too often simply a convenient compromise by which your pride and mine are able to get along together without too much friction. Merton argues that we prefer our own subjective view because then we can judge ourselves and let ourselves off the hook when we need to. Our flesh does not like the idea that there is an external standard by which we should be measured by. Because then we have to let go of bulldozing and making ourselves the victim and reacting out of fear without even giving it a second thought. And we have to pause and remember that there is a standard by which Christ has called us to. It is the humility of Christ that stands as our mirror as Christians. We must look long and hard at the one who was betrayed. The one who was lied about. And yet did not speak a mumbling word. The one who in all evil was coming down on him was able to simply walk a path of silent humility. He did not react with a knee-jerk reaction or take up a sword to strike vengeance. No, he simply received and he simply forgave And he simply loved, no matter the cost. This type of humility is our righteous judge. Only when we understand that there is a righteous judge 
that desires what is best for us, well, we discover what we desire most is actually to become smaller, to get lower, and to join in this type of powerful love. And to attribute the accolades of this life and the good gifts that are present in this life to the true giver of those gifts and to simply say, glory to God. I agree with Merton that we have a lot of growing up to do in this sense. Pride is pervasive in our society. And there are very few guides on the road called humility. And that we feign as humility is really just enough to get by with one another so frequently. So how do we know when we are experiencing authentic humility? Paul teaches that a right look at ourselves, stemming from a humble heart, has incredible benefits to the community. So we can know by the fruit that humility bears if it's being exercised authentically. He gives us a list of gifts that we should pray for. And I just want to mention two right now. One, the ability to speak truth to power. To speak prophetic truth without fear of the response of any audience or crowd or person. To speak a dream or a vision without embarrassment of seeming like one of those Christians. So in other words, to exercise a prophetic gift. Or another, the ability to give someone courage. To really name the goodness in another person. To know that words matter. And that the right words can help them reach their full potential. Some of my most sacred moments in ministry were sitting in a circle with young people as they encouraged one another and I watched as they discovered who God made them to be through powerful words of encouragement. Our words are able to give life. We discover also in this section of the listing of the gifts that God wants to give us that humility allows us to learn what we are good at and what we are not good at. To be confident in what God has given us and to also understand that we don't have every single gift. This is a blessing. It makes us need each other. This allows us, when we understand what our gifts are, to seek out complementary gifts build a team, and discover how God has made us to fit into a beautiful mosaic of human giftings and talents, and to find out our place in the Grand Conductor's Orchestra. This allows us to seek out friendship that is built on the purpose of bringing the kingdom of God to earth. I would be remiss if at this point I didn't also mention Philippians 2, 
and what it brings to the conversation biblically about humility. Philippians 2.3 says this, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. So we add a right view of ourselves to a generous view, thinking of others first, of the people in our lives, of the others out there that we do not know yet even. Man, I love when the Bible is countercultural just by simply reading some verses. We might just pause at this moment to ask again the question how much time have we spent valuing others over ourselves? If you're like me, your heart says you have some work to do in this category. In light of God's grace, may we never be afraid to do this type of work. As I close, hear these words from G.K. Chesterton. As he closed his work, A Defense of Rash Vows, in this way. He says, all around us in the city of small sins abounding in back ways and retreats, but surely sooner or later the towering flame will rise above the harbor, announcing that the reign of the coward is over. In these times where we are reminded of our own mortality, may we remember that we only have one life to live, And so in this short time we have, may we learn to walk down the road of humility so that we might discover all that God has for us. Let us pray together. Lord, we come now to receive the gifts that you want to give. Show us who you made us to be. Reveal your power in us But may we never become confused that it is a gift to be given to others. Humble our hearts and make a way for St. Andrews as the body of Christ to come together to do powerful things in your name for your glory. In your precious and holy name we pray, amen.